What is this? Strike a blow for justice, punch an attorney. What is <laughs> You know, you shouldn't encourage me like this. You keep feeding me things of this nature. I'm really trying to be good about not picking on our attorney friends. You know how it is. You say the right thing, right? Good morning. How are you this morning? Good, everybody alert, everyone ready to go. Last official weekend of uh, the summer vacation. School starts this week, and every mother said hallelujah, right? Hey, all the moms are kind of excited about it. But the, and every kid that's in here said, who is saying amen? This morning we're going to start a new series that um, if we were away on one of those cool weekend things, you know, like where they have those seminars and conferences and retreats and uh, they've got all those electives that you can sign up for and they've got all those neat courses and titles that they usually put together to try to attract you to be there, um, no one would sign up for this one. And, and, and so, well, that's why they don't teach things like this on those kind of weekends. Um, I just figured that it doesn't matter whether you want to sign up for it or not, right, because it's not really an elective. Um, we're just going to do it anyway. And the reason for it is, is because everything we're going to talk about in the weeks that are um, ahead of us is contrary to everything that is natural as far as our desires are concerned. It's series, and the series is really just based on one verse. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Mark. And uh, everything that we're going to discuss, I'll guarantee you at first glance, is going to be in total opposition to every natural desire that you or I have. Now, see, you know what? I, <clears throat> Although somebody did call me this week. Somebody called me and said that they're uh, putting up two uh, new presidential faces on Ru Mount Rushmore. And I said, oh, really? Uh, whose are they? I said, President Clinton's. Um, <laughs> Now, see, if I, was, if I was in tune to the 90s, I would realize that that wasn't a politically correct joke. So, you know, I, you know, I just pass these things along. I don't have an opinion one way or the other. I let you make the... Yeah. No, really. You, you make your own decisions. And uh, anyway, where were we? Oh, here it is. Uh, Mark chapter 10. Our whole series is based on this one verse. Two or ten? What did I say the first time? Well, I said 10 this time. Verse 45. Now, every now and then, if I throw out the wrong verse or passage, it's by design. Well, it is, because it's so dark in here. The lights are out. You know, I come in, three people are sleeping in the front row. We hadn't even got started yet. And uh, usually it takes 20 minutes for that to happen. And, uh, but I guess I'm ahead of schedule. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Everything we're going to talk about is based on this one verse. And you can see how this will oppose everything that comes natural as far as we're concerned. Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give. You know, for... There are often times when you read through the Bible that, you know, certain verses and passages just jump out and you kind of go, man, you know. And I remember when I first became a Christian in 1978, and I remember reading this particular passage. It's something I've always wanted to do, but I never really got to it the way that I would like to do it. But when I read this verse, it seemed in such opposition to everything that I was all about. 
For even the Son of Man came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You know, you read that and you want to try to get around this somehow. You want to be able to say, well, that was Jesus. See, he, he was here to serve and to give his life. And certainly we're not to give our life. And his life was given as a ransom for many, meaning that he was here to die for our sins. And that was his mission and that was his purpose. That's why he came. And he came straight from, uh, you know, if you stop and think about it, I mean, basically that was what he was all about. But then you read through this, it says, well, but even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give. Now, I don't know a lot about you, but I like to be served. And it drives me nuts if it's not done right. How many of you go to a restaurant and it just, just infuriates you if you're not served properly? Now, what is our society all about? It certainly isn't about serving people anymore. It used to be service with a smile. Uh, you know, you'd actually go into a gas station and wash your windshield. They would check your oil. Uh, they would do that now if you want to pay $2.57 a gallon for gasoline, right? But you can have that done. But nobody just does it because that's what they do. Our society isn't based on the premise of serving one another. It's based on the premise of taking from each other. And if you stop and think about it, now here's this passage, and I struggle with it because servant, servanthood isn't something that gets me too excited. You know, for the most part, we like to be waited upon. We like to be served. We like to take. We don't like to give. Uh, we want to be recognized. We certainly don't want somebody else to get the credit for something that we feel we should get the credit for. And uh, I remember a, a, a sign that I saw in a picture, uh, President Reagan, when he was in office, in the back of his desk right next to his jelly beans. Um, uh, there was a sign that said, there's no telling how far a man can get or what he can do if he doesn't mind who gets the credit. And that's a fascinating sign because it's in such a direct opposition to everything that we believe. You don't like somebody taking credit for something that you do on your job. Nobody does. And yet, there's something about this that we struggle with, that we look at, and for the most part, you know, the monument of our life is basically built like this. And that's the way that it is. You know, I come first, me come second, uh, that's mine and myself. And that's the way that it is. And if you see selfishness in the life of another person, it's so obvious and it becomes so apparent and it's so obnoxious that it actually disgusts you when you see it. And there's, you know, there's no better place to see it in the life of a small child. And if you've ever been on an airplane captivated in the air for four or five hours or six hours on a flight with some little kid that just basically, he's a terrorist in disguise. You know, that's what it is. I mean, he just doesn't have a gun. He has anything else that he has at his disposal, but he's a terrorist. And, uh, you know, everything's mine. Give me that. That's mine. Me, mine, huh? You know, and we see that in kids, and we go, man, that is just disgusting. And so every parent tries to teach their children how to share, right? That's not yours, we'll share. That's mine. And you have somebody come over, and they take something that's theirs, man, they let them know whose it is. But what's really cool about it is that as we grow older, we get much more refined in how we do that. Sometimes, though, you got to just do that. You know, somebody comes over, and they touch something that's yours, that's mine. And just, you know, catch them off guard because that's what you're really thinking. You know, and just express it. Because this is what we're all about. Me. Everything is me. You know, there are books, you know, that you can buy, they're bestsellers. We buy them by the millions on how we can get ahead. How I can achieve something. Uh, you know, it's, everything's based on me. 
me, myself, mine, I, and you go through it. And the problem that we have is that, you know, it's interesting, we abhor selfishness in the lives of other people, but somehow or another we can always rationalize it in our own life. And so as we go through this series, you're going to find that, uh, you know, this find yourself, please yourself, I've got my rights, man, uh, that's mine. This whole mentality is going to be challenged by this one particular verse. For even the Son of Man, even God himself, didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give. And yet our mindset is, I want to be served. I want to be waited upon. I want to be acknowledged. I want the credit. And we struggle with this. Now, I don't know about you, but the whole idea of servitude or, you know, to be a servant doesn't turn me on. I don't think there's anyone here that would aspire as they're growing up or go to school that they're going to take a college, you know, that, that they want to major in servitude. I would like to be a servant. Uh, where can I go for courses on that? Nobody would ever desire to do that because there's a stereotype and it kind of goes back to, you know, Alex Haley and Roots and Kunta Kinte and, you know, migrant workers and oppression and, uh, and inhumanity and all the things that, you know, an oppression and everything that Christianity opposes. So if you think about it, you know, if the mindset is I'm not going to be a servant because the servant attitude or mentality throughout the history of our world has been one of oppression and inhumane treatment and loss of human dignity, why would I want to put myself into that position? Because that's everything that Jesus came to set us free from. And yet, on the other hand, you get this verse and you wrestle with it, and it says, but even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but the servant to give. So we've got a real problem here, and that is, what does that mean? What does it mean to me? What does it mean to you? What does it mean to all of us? And so we have to deal with it. What does it mean? Does it apply to me? Does it apply to you? Uh, what does it really mean and, and how does it affect the way that I live and think about the people around me or even about myself? Um, what does it really mean to serve and to give? And the best one is, you know, but does this really apply to us? Or was this just applicable to Jesus? So if you've got your Bibles open, flip a couple books ahead to Romans chapter 8 and let's just answer the first question and that is, does this really apply to us? Does this apply to us or was Jesus unique and somehow or another this was, you know, something that he was going to fulfill and had nothing to do with us? Romans 8, verses 28 and 29. And it's fascinating to me because if you look at it, what's God's desire of each one of our lives? Romans 8, 28 and 29 will give you the answer on that. What does God desire of my life? It says, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, he also glorified. To make this a little more personal, you read this and you put your name in there. For him whom he foreknew. He foreknew me from the beginning of time. I didn't pop on the scene and he say, oh gee, well here's another one. You know, God foreknew everyone that has been created from the beginning of time. It says, for whom he also predestined, to what? To become conformed to the image of his Son. God's goal for every one of us whom he foreknew and whom he predestined is for us to become conformed to the image of his Son, Jesus Christ. So what does that mean? Real simple. There's no way you can get around it. This means to me that when I read that Jesus came to serve and to give, that if I'm to be more like Jesus, and it's God's desire for me to become more like Jesus, that is, his desire for me then is 
cut out all the mumbo-jumbo about what God's will is for your life and just deal with this one thing. God's desire, His will for our lives is to become more like Jesus and that we become servers and givers instead of takers. His desire for our life is to serve and to give. It's fascinating because you've got to look at that in light of, is that really true of my life? Do I serve and do I give? Or do I expect waited upon and do I take? If I'm to be more like Jesus, I have to serve and give. Matthew chapter 20, uh, flip back to that because it's a problem that has always existed. It'll be a problem that continues to exist because it's just not a natural thing for us to want to serve and to give. If we do give, we want credit for it. If we do serve, it's usually with ulterior motives of some sort that we want to benefit from it. If I do this for you, then you'll do this for me, and it's the marker system, and it's based on, hey, you know what, we'll all take care of each other, but don't forget that I took care of you because when I need you to take care of me, then I'll call in the chips or I'll call in the markers, and you owe me because I did this for you. But it's so contrary to everything the Bible teaches because God says that I want you, Chuck, to be more conformed to the image of my son. And he was a servant. And he was a giver. And the disciples saw that about the life of Jesus. He was a servant. And he gave. And you would think that guys who were around him that saw him serve and to give and saw the example that he led would have a pretty good feel for what it means to be a servant and what it means to give instead of take. What it means to be involved in the lives of other people instead of always wanting everything to revolve around you. What it means to just give anonymously and without anybody paying attention to it or without any, any recourse or reciprocation on their part. And then here's in Matthew chapter 20, here's all these guys that saw Jesus as a servant and yet they missed the whole thing. In Matthew chapter 20, look at verse 20. It says, the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons, bowing down and making requests. So here comes this woman with her two sons. And he said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered and said, you don't know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they said to him, we are, we're able to do that. And he said to them, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and to sit on my left, this is not mine to give, but is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. Now the other ten guys are sitting around listening to this whole conversation, and they got upset. It says they became indignant, meaning they became very angry with the two brothers. Why? Because, man, it's like, hey, wait a minute, who do you guys think you are that you're going to be on the right and the left? Like, what about the rest of us? It's like a typical office scene at promotion time. You know what I mean? Hey, who do you think you are? I mean, I've been here longer than you. And in fact, you know, what gives you the right to be put in this position? And why would you even ask? Now, the problem that they had, too, is that sometimes we get upset when other people ask because they may get what they ask for, and you realize there's only two seats there. There's one on the right, and there's one on the left. Now, if he gives them what they ask for, they're all ticked off because they should have initiated the same conversation. And so, you know, you don't ask, you don't receive, right? And so they're struggling with this whole thing about these guys that want to be in this power position. And so they become angry with them. But Jesus called them to himself, got them all together and said, look, it's time for another lesson. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great men exercise authority over them. Making a very, very easily recognizable statement. Saying, you know what, the world works on power. Everybody's on a power trip. This is the way authority works. You know how the world works. 
You know how it works in your office. There's the owner, there's the boss, there's some management position, there's some vice president. There's some, somewhere along the line, there's a structure that's set up as far as authority. It's like that in the military, it's like that in the coaching profession, it's like that on, with coaches and, and players, it's like that with military uh, officers and enlisted people, it's like that in the police department, the fire department, it's like that the world operates on this, on this basis. There are, you know, the rank and file, that's the way that it works out. And so what they were assuming is that, you know what, the only way you get ahead in life is that you have to be a top dog. You've got to be somebody that has some clout, and you've got to be someone in the position of authority. Because after all, that's the only way that you'll get ahead in life. You've got to be on top. And they all understood that, and they knew that's how it worked. We all understand that. We know that's how it worked. So the temptation for us is to put that mindset upon ourselves, the same mindset that we see here, and that is, you know what, the only way I'm going to get ahead in life is I've got to be the top dog. And so my desire now is to climb the corporate ladder of some sort or be in a position to be the one who makes the decisions. Because if you make the decisions, you get all the power. And if you got the power, you call the shots. And so Jesus said to him, hey, look, you know what, that's the way it is. I realize that, you realize it, but, 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 we got a problem here. It's not so among you. Because whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. For just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This is tough stuff. Because we have a certain mindset that says the only way we're going to get ahead is if we play the game that the world plays, we need to be in a position of power and authority. But Jesus said, no, you don't understand. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you've got to become a servant to all. If you want to be first in God's kingdom, the only way to get there is by be, being last. And it's really an interesting thing because that mentality, this whole, this whole mentality of pleasing ourselves or becoming the boss not only infiltrates our minds as Christians in the secular world in which we live, but it's no different even in churches. You got power struggles and power plays and ugly things that go on in, 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 in board meetings and, and in people that want to be on top. They want to be, you know, the senior this or the senior that because they don't want to be the subservient anything. And no one wants to be second fiddle to anybody and that pride sets in and it becomes ugly and sin is in the midst of all of it. And then we wonder why it's so confusing and why there's problems and why there's no direction and why we're struggling with all this stuff. See, that mindset isn't just, you know, it, it, it doesn't preclude our lives as Christians even in a church setting. And it's really kind of scary in a way because we've developed the same mentality as God's people that the only way we're going to get ahead is be on top. And if you try to keep me from getting on top, I'll squash you somehow in some way. Now, as a Christian, we do it in much more dignified ways. You know, we know how to get around those things by setting, you know, setting the deck and talking to this person and that person before we get all, everybody together. And we, and we do all this, but, you know, that's how you do it. But in the world, man, it's just cutthroat and they don't care. And they'll do whatever they can to slice your throat and then step on your carcass to get ahead. But I wonder sometimes if we're any different as Christians because we've developed the same mindset. And so we look at all this, and there's some refreshing uh, scriptures that can help us through all of it. But in Colossians chapter 1, here's something that's kind of, I look at it as the great equalizer. Colossians 1, will set the deck for what we're going to talk about this morning. But Colossians 1, look at verses 15 through 18. 
this will keep us all from getting into trouble. It's a passage that's talking about Jesus Christ. And in Colossians 1, 15 through 18, here's what we read. And he, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. It says, for he is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. All right? Now here's the way it works. Let me oversimpl overly simplify something. There is only one head of the church, and that's Jesus himself. The rest of us comprise the body. There is one head, that's Jesus. The rest of us are servants. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about gifts of the Holy Spirit. There are gifted men, there are gifted women. We are, certain, we are gifted in certain ways. Some are more visible than others. Uh, some are the, the more uh, demonstrable gifts. Others are kind of behind the scenes types of things. But, but here's a truth that we need not ever forget. You and I, regardless of the gifts that God has given us, regardless of the authority that God has placed us in as far as here on earth, whether it's in an office setting or whether it's in a church setting, it doesn't make any difference. No matter where we are, and we need authority and we need structure, and certainly that is ordained by God. Romans 13 specifically talks about it. We need structure and authority in society. But the problem that we have, and the thing that we sometimes fail to realize, is that there is only one authority, and that's God himself, Jesus be, being given the preeminent position. Jesus is the head of the church. All the rest of us are servants. No matter what position I ever find myself in, I need to remember I am a servant no different than any other servant in the body of Christ. The gifts that you and I have are gifts that are given to us by God anyway. We can't take any credit for what God does in our life. We give Him all the praise and the glory. So anything that goes on in our life, no matter how much money you have, no matter how much authority you are given here on earth, no matter what the gift is that God has given you, no matter what, those of us who understand what the Bible is teaching very simply look at it and say, you know what? We need to remember that Jesus is the head and the rest of us are all servants. Period. Where we get into trouble is that we get these high and dynamic people that have high profile that somehow think... That at some point in time, everything gets confused in their mind that they're even greater than Jesus as far as authority is concerned. And they're not submissive to the Word of God. They're not submissive to the headship of Christ in their life. And they get out of control. And what God needs to remind all of us is, is that, you know what? If we want to be great in the kingdom of God, we've got to be servants to everyone. If you are in a leadership position or you're in a position of authority, no matter where it is, whether it's in your own home or whether it's in a business or community or a neighborhood or whether it's here in church, no matter where it is, if you're in a leadership position, you must always maintain a servant's mindset. You've got to have an attitude that you are there to serve. We don't know what that's like because we don't have any role models for that. It drives me crazy. I go into building departments all the time because, you know, being in the construction business, you take license out, pull permits, things of that nature. And, you know, it's really funny. It's like going to DMV. You know, it's, it's a sad statement of the reality of our world, and that is that people don't know what it means to serve other people. 
and it drives me nuts, and I want to just take out, you know, a hammer or something and start pounding. Let me give you a three-point servant, ma'am, sir, behind the counter. Let me tell you something. You're a public servant if you work for the government, which means you work for us. We pay your salary. Don't jerk me around. Don't give me a bad time. Don't get this attitude toward me that somehow or another you're better than us and what, blah, 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 and stand over there and take a number and shut up and sit down and we'll get to you. And if we don't, too bad. What's the deal here? You don't have that attitude. If you're in a private enterprise, you don't have that attitude and get away with it towards your customers. They say, fine, we'll go somewhere else. Yeah, I hear you. But we don't have anywhere to go. Where do you go? It's like, I don't like your attitude. They say, fine, watch this, it gets worse. And I'm thinking, it can't get any worse. It does. It's unbelievable. But what are they? They're servants. Government employees are servants of the people. We pay their salaries. I don't understand it. You know what? If you're in business, you understand it. You don't treat people like that. You have to have a servant's attitude or mindset or you won't have any business. We need to understand what that is. It's so funny, even in law enforcement, you see, what's it say on their side? To, to serve and protect. Public servants. Anybody that doesn't have a heart for people shouldn't be in a public servant position. You know? That's like people in ministry. What's, I mean, primary responsibility anybody in ministry is to serve people. And when you lose that attitude or mindset and you think that people are a burden or, or somehow or another they're a pain in the butt, then get out and do something else. But what you'll find is you won't be successful in anything else but government work. Because no one will hire you. I think you get, you, know, you get hired for jobs like that by having an attitude. And it's like, civil servant, man, I'm in. They can't get rid of me. I'm in for life. Oh, my gosh. We're all with you, I guess. Man, you know, and it's sad because the problem is, is that as Christians, <laughs> we're no better. We're no better, and we're no different. And I hope none of you work for the DMV because <laughs> when my license comes for renewal, I think I'm going to have all kind of trouble. But, but we're, not. We're, not, we're not any better. We're not any different. And the servant attitude and serving and giving you would think would be the most obvious thing that attracts people to Christians. Man, this guy's got a servant's heart. This gal's got a servant's heart. Man, they're always giving, giving, giving. They never take. They never want anything. They're just always, they're, they're servants. And the problem is that we don't even know what a servant looks like anymore, so we're going to do a little thing on a portrait of a servant. Let me give you just three things, because I don't think we can handle any more than three things. But if you stop and think about it, the Apostle Paul was probably the best example outside of Jesus Christ himself as far as what a servant really looks like. You know, when I first became a Christian, you read about Paul and you think, man, here's this guy, man. He's like Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, John Wayne. He's, he's like a man's man. He's like, you know, he's on top. People are waiting on him. They're coming to him. He's in charge. He's visible. He's in a leadership position. You know, you think all these things, but then you read about his life and you begin to realize that's not him at all. Every letter that he writes, he starts out, Paul, a bondservant. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. He recognized his position. And that was that Jesus was in charge. He was the top, he was the top of, the, uh, of the totem pole, and that's his position, rightfully so. And Paul was just a servant of his. 
And he reminds himself by reminding people that even though I'm an apostle and even though you hear, heard about me and even though you think I carry all this clout and weight, let me just remind you that I'm just a servant. And so in, second, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he gives us the first characteristic, if you want to call it that, of a true servant. We touched base a little bit on it last week, but I want to reiterate some things. He says that in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 3, he said, when I came to you, talking to the church at Corinth, he says, when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and in fear and with much trembling. If we're ever to become servants as God desires us to be, we need to have some type of transparent humanity that says, hey, you know what? I am not perfect because I'm a Christian. I am far from being perfect because I'm a Christian. I am going to make mistakes, but I don't enter into life every day thinking that I'm going to or planning out which ones they'll be. But I know that because I am still human that I will screw up, I'll make mistakes, and people will look at me and say, geez, you let me down. I know that. I understand that. And there's something transparent about a person that says, you know what? I'm just a human being like you. The only difference between me and you is that I have accepted God's forgiveness for my sins by believing that Jesus died for them. The only thing that separates Christians from the rest of the world is that we have a relationship with God by trusting in Jesus Christ. That's it. And the wonderful thing about it is, and that's what Paul said, he said, you know what? I didn't come with eloquence or superior wisdom and proclaim the testament of God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I think some of us have become so arrogant in our Christianity that we have forgotten that we are saved by the grace of God, not based upon anything that we ever have done or continue to do or will ever do in the future. You're not better than anybody else in the world because you come to church, read your Bible, teach a Bible study because your marriage is going along fine or your children aren't in trouble or you're not doing drugs or you're not doing alcohol or you know all these other things that are going on in the world that we live in because you somehow find yourself free from that stuff. You're not better than anybody because of it. What you need to do is thank God that you're not in the same situation that people are in that you run into every day. See, that's transparent humanity. That's amen. I hurt for you. I feel for you. I know what you're going through tell you this, I don't want to know anything else but Jesus and Him crucified. The only way you can be free from that is trusting in Jesus Christ. I, but by the grace of God, would be in the same situation that you're in because I know what road I was going down and if it wasn't for Jesus intervening in my life and knocking me off my horse like He did the Apostle Paul, then you know what? I'd be just in the same boat that every person that I come in contact with in the world that doesn't know Jesus and has problems in their life. You know what? The world has this attitude about Christians that somehow we are uh, unapproachable. That we're so much better than them that they couldn't come to us and share with us the problems that they're going through, no matter what they are. We need to be able to be transparent enough to make people realize that no matter how screwed up you are in your life, no matter what's going on in your life, no matter what problems you have in your life, you can come and talk to us about it because we can understand. Because what we understand is that's why Jesus died for us. That's why we need a Savior. We need help. I'm not better than you, man. The bumper sticking. Christians aren't perfect. They're just forgiven. It's so true. But it's more than they're just forgiven. That makes it sound so easy. 
They are forgiven because of what Jesus did on the cross. And I don't want to know anything other than the fact that He loved me and He died for me and He shed His blood for me and He died a horrendous death, death for me. And that grace is not cheap, but it was very costly and it was paid for dearly on the cross by Jesus. And we need to understand that that death, that suffering, that shedding of blood is the only thing that sets us free. So stop being so arrogant and obnoxious as if somehow you're better than the world that we live in because you're not. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No, there's none righteous. No, not one. And when Jesus Christ enters your life and He cleans you up and He makes you new and old things pass away and all things become new, sometimes we forget what those old things were. And that's great. And that's wonderful that God gives us the grace to forget the past that we've had. But if we forget the past at the expense of the present and being able to relate to people who are still going through it, then that's a tragedy and it was never designed for in the cross of Christ. See, Paul said, you know what? I'm not perfect. And if you don't believe it, read Romans 7. Why do I do the things I don't want to do and the things I do want to do, I don't do? You know, here I am as a Christian and not every time that I try to or want to do I always please God. I do stupid things. And yet I realize this. Who can set me free from this stupid habit or this pattern that I live in? Hey, thanks be to God for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He can set you free from it. See, but we need to understand that we're not better than anybody else. We need to be able to say, hey, you know what? We need to be real. And there's nothing worse than hypocritical Christians who think they're better than the rest of the world that they live in. It's, it's, it's just disgusting. It's obnoxious. It doesn't draw anybody closer to Christ. In fact, what it does is it repels people from Him. Because if that's Christianity, if that's what Jesus is all about, I don't want anything to do with it. And for a long time, the Christians that I saw in my life that came in front of me were so hypocritical that I couldn't see Christ because of the Christian who was standing in his way. But what he's saying is, you know what? Jesus should shine through us. If we're real, we don't have a problem saying, man, you know what? Sure, I struggle in our marriage. There's nothing easy about being married. In fact, what God does, he brings people that are opposite together and says, watch this, it's a miracle. I'm going to make this work out. That's true. If you think about it, he goes, and it's only a miracle that people could stay married. I mean, and stay married and have a wonderful relationship and enjoy being married. That's a miracle of God. It doesn't make any sense. Because why? Because the rest of the world says, hey man, there's nothing in this for me. You know, this isn't working for me. But what Jesus says is, you know what? I didn't even come to be served and to give. See, if you have a servant mentality in your marriage, guess what? Maybe things will change. If you're to serve and to give instead of taking what you think you need, maybe it could change your life. Same mentality in business. Same mentality in the church. Same mentality in our communities. You know, it's a fascinating thing, but you know what? Maybe this serving and giving thing really works. 1 Corinthians 2, 4 through 6. He's also a humble guy. Genuine humility. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, with the demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on man's wisdom, but on God's power. I like that. We need to be humble people that realize, can you imagine a preacher saying this? A preacher saying, you know what? My message, my preaching, weren't, they weren't with wise and persuasive words but they were with a demonstration of God's power. Why? So that you don't elevate the speaker, but that you praise God. And you know what's amazing to me? How many of you have tried to convince somebody to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? How many of you have ever tried to convince somebody to do that? I mean, I, in fact, it's so funny, you raise your hands going, oh man, oh man, I've been trying, I've been trying. You just want to stink and pop them one sometimes. 
You know, it's like the Inquisition. Drag them through the river, man. Hey, you know, be baptized or stink and drown. You know, accept the Lord or I'm going to punch you out. You know, you get that way. It's like, man, don't you see? And it's like, yeah, well, I see is you're getting all frustrated and being stupid. That's what I see. I see you're like, you know, you want to strangle me because I don't understand what you're saying. I see you want to strangle me because you don't want me to sign up. I mean, I don't see any love or patience or, or joy in your life as a Christian because I'm frustrating you. And gee, if I can frustrate you, then what's the deal? But see, what Paul said was the answer is very simple. You know what? None of us will ever drag anybody into heaven with us. Humility of spirit means, hey, you know what? All I need to do is I just need a life that's pleasing to God. I need to share with people what Jesus has done in my life. But you know what I realize? Salvation's all of God. Salvation's of God. We don't talk anybody into heaven. We don't talk anybody into receiving Christ, as we say. We don't talk anybody into signing a card or walking down front. You know what? The persuasive speakers that can motivate people on emotional response, and they've got that great story at the end, you know, nothing wrong with any of that, but when we realize that that's not even what reaches people's hearts for a permanent life change for all of eternity, that may get you out of the aisle, may get you down front, it may have you pray a prayer, but God knows our heart. That emotional heartstring tug and persuasiveness of words and speech, hey, you know what? God doesn't need any of it. All he needs is the power of his spirit in the life of another person that can open their eyes and heart to hear the gospel and receive Christ. Salvation's all of God. So what Paul's saying, and it's a very humbling thing for any speaker to say this, but he says, you know what? I, I, don't, I never led anybody to Christ. The spirit of God leads people to Christ. The spirit of God converts people, changes their heart, makes them new. No speaker in the world's ever done it. No one ever will. But you know what's so funny? That's what we look for in people when we, when we want to interview them or candidate them or we want to go to a church and pick where we're going to go. We look for somebody that's a haircut right, they've got nice suits on, they know how to present themselves, they've got the neat story, a couple funny jokes. You know? That's what we look for in the speaker package. You know? But the funny thing is that really the way we should measure any speaker is when, 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 he, when he speaks or she speaks, and do they present the Word of God so that the Word of God goes out and doesn't come back empty and our lives change because of what they're teaching and speaking on? That's the only way you measure success in the kingdom of God. It's not measured any other way. That's the way it's always been measured. And Paul realized it and said, hey, I'm not some big honcho. All I can tell you is I've never talked to anybody in the kingdom of God, so you don't elevate me as a man. The danger with all this is, is you just need to understand it's the Spirit of God that does it. Period. You know what's a wonderful thing for me as a servant? Realizing as I serve other people and as I share what God's done in my life when Christ came into it, uh, when I realize that it's all of God's power and all of God's uh, demonstration of His power, then when a person accepts Christ, I can praise God realizing it was Jesus Christ Himself who revealed Himself to that person. If a person refuses to receive Christ or they reject Him on an ongoing basis, I don't take it personal, I don't get frustrated by it because it's all in God's timing. And it's a matter of my obedience to do what God's asking me to do and it doesn't make any difference because guess what? My salvation's not based upon how many people I sign up. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Because some of us never tried to sign anybody up. And I say that loosely, but what I'm saying is that some of us have never shared what Jesus has done in your life with any other human being on the face of the earth. So it's a real good thing that it's by grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves, that it's not a matter of performance, that it's not a matter of how much we're out in the world being recognized as Christians, no matter what we're doing. It's a good thing it's not based on any of that, huh? Hallelujah. No one say amen? Okay, well, whatever. But the reality of it is, is that genuine humility is realizing that, you know what? 
This is what you're looking at is all work of God. Plain and simple. And when God's people are out in the world, Jesus gets all the credit. Jesus is exalted for the position that we're in, the abilities that we have, the gifts that God has given us, the material possessions that God blesses us with. No matter where we are in life, what we have in life, we realize that, you know what, we owe it all to God. And it's Him who's elevated. And the last thing, and probably the most difficult but refreshing, and we'll close on this, is in 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 2, Paul says, Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we don't lose heart. Rather, we have renounced the secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the Word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Absolute honesty. There's nothing more refreshing, more attractive than a person who is honest in every area of their life. Transparent humanity and absolute honesty go hand in hand. Humility is giving credit to God for everything that we are, everything that we'll ever be. But honesty is saying, you know what, to the world that we live in, hey, I'm a Christian, I don't have all the answers. And there's some things I still don't understand. But I do understand this. I know what Jesus did in my life. I know what he's doing in my life today. I know what he's brought me from, and I know where I am, and I know where I'm going. And man, I'll tell you what, there's something attractive about that. See, absolute honesty is saying, hey, you're not going to want to hear this because this is what God says about your situation. You're not going to want to hear that if you reject Jesus Christ, you're going to spend eternity in hell. You don't want to hear that. I realize that. You don't want to hear that if you keep living a certain lifestyle, it's indicative of the fact that you've never come to know Christ, according to the Bible's definition of a Christian. I know you don't want to hear that. I know you don't want to hear what the Bible has to say about this situation, this problem that you're struggling with and the decision that you have to make. I know you don't want to hear this, but I'm going to tell it to you anyway because it's the truth of the Word of God, because the truth is going to set you free. See, I know you don't want to hear this stuff, but you know what's amazing to me? is that if we continue to, to resort to the truth, which is the Word of God, realizing that it's the power of God that changes lives, that it's the conviction of the Holy Spirit in the life of another person using the Word of God to do so, if we continue to understand that and believe that and live that, then people are going to be changed around us just because God honors His Word. And we need to be honest with people and let them know, hey, you don't want to hear what I'm about to tell you, but I love you and I care for you, and you need to understand the sense of urgency that's, that's involved here. And God loves you and He cares for you too. And there was a sense of urgency when He sent Christ to die for you. Don't you understand? Let me explain it to you. And then be praying for them. But you know what the biggest problem is? I mean, through all of this, hey, God wants transparent people. God wants people that are humble, that will give Him praise and glory, and Jesus will be exalted in our life so that people have no choice but to see Jesus clearly. God wants us to be honest in our relationships with one another and honest about the truth of the Word of God because it's only the Word of God that can change lives and it's only that truth that will set people free. But in reality, all of this, I'm going to close with a story that was one of my favorite stories. I pulled it out. I had it in the archives for a while. But it's a story, it's a, it's a children's book, but it's a story that helps us to understand everything that we're trying to say. And I'm going to read it to you because it's an imaginary conversation that takes place between two stuffed animals. Some of you, it's not going to be a stretch for you to think about this. <laughs> Two stuffed animals, they're hanging out in a nursery together. And they're going to have this conversation. Here's the conversation. It says, the skin horse lived longer in the nursery than any of the others. He was so old that his brown coat was bald in patches and showed the seams underneath. 
and most of the hairs in his tail had been pulled out to string bead necklaces. He was wise, for he had seen a long succession of mechanical toys arrive to boast and to swagger, and by and by break their mainstrings and pass away. And he knew that they were only toys and would never turn into anything else. It says, For nursery magic is very strange and wonderful, and only those playthings that are old and wise and experienced like the skin horse truly understand all about it. What is real? asked the rabbit one day when they were lying side by side before Nana came to tidy the room. Does it mean having things that buzz inside of you and stick out like a handle? No, real isn't how you're made, said the skin horse. It's the thing that happens to you when a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt? asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. When you are real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up, or is it just kind of bit by bit? It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't often happen to people who break easily, or who have sharp edges, or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time that you are real, most of your hair has been loved off, and your eyes drop out, and you get loose in the joints, and you become very shabby. But these things don't matter at all because once you are real, you can't be ugly even to people who don't understand. And if there's any encouragement that I have for you and myself, it's to realize that God uses real people in a real world to solve real problems by drawing them to a real Savior in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we're just grateful that uh, your word penetrates every area of life. God, we are just so selfish individually and collectively as people. God, there's not much role models or many that we can look at that understand the value of being a servant. And God, how regretful it is when we as your people don't serve and don't give to the world around us. God, help us to understand that giving makes absolutely no sense. Serving makes no sense to the world that's just dedicated to taking. And yet, that's probably why you choose to command us to do that. Because as we serve and we give to people around us, it, it can't help but generate conversation as to why we do it. And God, as those conversations take place, may we never forget that the reason we did it is because Jesus gave us the best example. That He came here to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. And that as people see us as servants and as givers, they'll be drawn to the Savior who started it all. God, help us to be real. To be transparent in our weaknesses to be humble and give you praise and glory that Jesus would be exalted in our life. And to be honest that we don't have all the answers, but the ones that we know are good enough to share with the world around us. And that each day we're becoming more and more conformed to the image and likeness of your Son. God, help us to be real in a world that is so pretend. And we just thank you that you give us the strength to do it. You never ask us to do anything that you know we can't do nor have you given us the power through the presence of your Spirit in our life. And we just thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.